said profit dropped 33% to $2.058 billion, or $5.47 a share, from a year earlier. Revenue also slipped 1% to $11.82 billion, though that topped expectations by roughly $600 million. Bond trading revenue fell 6% from a year earlier to $3.38 billion, but that was almost $600 million more than what analysts had expected. Goldman cited strength in interest rate products and mortgages, which helped offset declines in trading of currencies, commodities, and credit. Equities trading revenue climbed 8% from a year earlier to $2.96 billion on higher activity in derivatives, topping the estimate by roughly $200 million. Investment banking revenue edged higher by 1% to $1.55 billion, slightly exceeding the $1.48 billion estimate. Goldman shares were almost unchanged in pre-market trading. Among its big bank peers, Goldman Sachs is the most reliant on investment banking and trading revenue. While it's made efforts under CEO David Solomon to diversify its revenue stream, first in an ill-fated retail banking push and later as it emphasized growth in asset and wealth management, it is Wall Street that powers the company. Last quarter, trading and advisory accounted for two-thirds of Goldman's revenue. That's been a headwind this year as mergers, initial public offerings and debt issuance all have been muted as the Federal Reserve boosted interest rates to slow the economy down. With signs that activity has picked up lately, analysts will be eager to hear about Goldman's pipeline of deals. At the same time, Goldman has taken hits from two areas, its strategic retrenchment away from retail banking has saddled the firm with losses as it finds buyers for unwanted operations, and its exposure to commercial real estate has resulted in write-downs as well. The bank said Tuesday it posted a $506 million third-quarter write-down tied to lending business GreenSky, and $358 million in real estate impairments. We continue to make significant progress executing on our strategic priorities, Solomon said in the release. I also expect a continued recovery in both capital markets and strategic activity if conditions remain conducive. As the leader in Manda advisory and equity underwriting, a resurgence in activity will undoubtedly be a tailwind for Goldman Sachs. Analysts will be keen to hear more on Solomon's view of the investment banking outlook, as well as how the remaining parts of its consumer effort, mainly, its Apple Card business, fit in the latest iteration of Goldman Sachs. Goldman shares have dropped 8.4% this year through Monday, a better showing than the 21% decline of the KBW Bank Index. Stacey Chapin walked into a conference ballroom at the annual CrimeCon gathering in Orlando, Florida, and let out a gasp. Nearly 3,000 people were packed inside, all to hear a college professor from Alabama conduct a forensic analysis of how Miss Chapin's son and three of his college friends had been brutally murdered in Idaho last year. Ethan Chapin was, it was trippling. Uh, and was majoring in sports management at the Miss Chapin backed herself into an alcove to observe the discussion, muttering as the speaker mispronounced the name of her son's girlfriend, who was also one of the victims. 
then botched the description of the landscape around the crime scene. The audience was captivated. Within minutes, Miss Chapin was quietly pushing herself out a side door. I, I, how does somebody, this is the perfect example for me, why does that person get to talk about mind? In front of all the in front of all of those people. I literally almost ran up on the stage. Why does that person get to talk about my kid in front of all those people? Miss Chapin whispered in the hallway. Then she wondered, well, should I go up on the stage? You know, I'm like, I, it's my kid. Why do people get, why do people like this get to tell our kids story? And telling them, does this guy know that Ethan's mom is sitting here? My name is Stacy Chapin. And I'm Ethan's mom. I'm Mike Baker. I'm a national correspondent with the New York Times. Over this past year, I've been really interested in the true crime phenomenon in this country and how many people are really captivated by that genre and consume true crime shows and podcasts and books and spend a lot of time discussing cases online. So, I decided to go last month to the annual CrimeCon convention in Florida to see where victims' families fit into this mix of entertainment and advocacy and see what it's like through the eyes of a victim's family. And I actually didn't sit through it because it's too hard to watch, but I do want all of you to know that these were four of the greatest kids and that all of the great things that you read about them is legitimately true. And I can speak on behalf of my own son, who was an incredible human. And we miss him all terribly. But it's a very strange situation. <laughs> 10 months ago, Miss Chapin was thrust into the center of a nation's obsession with true crime as armies of podcast listeners, internet commentators, and amateur sleuths were consumed by the mystery of how Ethan Chapin and three other University of Idaho students had been stabbed to death late one night in a house near campus. Now she found herself navigating an unfamiliar world where she was an unwitting celebrity, searching for a way to harness the fervor for something good. She arrived as a guest of CrimeCon, where attendees, after paying for an entry-level ticket with a price tag of $349, could measure blood spatter, analyze the drawings of a serial killer, cheer their crime-solving heroes, and absorb the gory details of notorious rapes and murders. The annual conference, which this year drew 5,000 people from all 50 states, capitalizes on what has been a breakneck level of growth in the true crime genre. Last week, of the 20 top podcasts on the Apple platform, more than half were related to true crime. Some attendees described their fascination with criminal minds, others said they felt deep empathy with the victims, who were lured by the enticing possibility that someone asking the right questions or unearthing a missing digital clue could help bring justice to a stricken family. Relatives of some of those families also signed up, posting materials and sharing stories overjoyed that people and podcasters were eager to listen. In the exhibition hall, businesses vied for attention, one offering true crime branded coffee, as the crackle of someone testing a stun gun was heard from a table nearby. A crime scene cleaning company had set up a bloodied cardboard box next to a booth 
where attendees could get photos of themselves against a perp lineup backdrop. Miss Chapin flinched and turned away as a television screen flashed images of the man accused of killing her son. Attendees had a chance to mingle with the stars of the genre. A YouTuber grabbed a selfie with Camille Vasquez, the lawyer known for her recent work representing the actor Johnny Depp. Dozens lined up to meet the former cold case detective, Paul Holes. The conference's welcome party featured Creighton Waters, the prosecutor who led the murder case against the South Carolina lawyer Alex Murdoch, doing a rendition of Brown Eyed Girl on guitar. Miss Chapin had never been a follower of true crime, nor, frankly, understood its appeal. Over the past year, she's largely avoided most of the news coverage and public discussion of her son's murder, but in the early days of the case, she got a glimpse into the power of the true crime community to galvanize and organize, sometimes in alarming ways. As word of her son's case spread via a broad network of YouTube channels, TikTok personalities, and Facebook groups, True crime sleuths were captivated by the Idaho mystery, one where a killer had managed to fatally stab four people on two floors of a rental home before exiting into the night. With no suspects emerging and police pleading for tips, thousands of online sleuths went to work. They uploaded maps of the neighborhood and floor plans of the house and analyzed photos, including one that some thought revealed blood seeping down its outer walls. They scoured social media interactions, freeze-framing a Twitch livestream video that showed two of the victims stopping at a food truck hours before they were killed. They proposed a series of theories. An ex-boyfriend had committed the crime, or a roommate of the victims, or a neighbor who had been doing interviews, or a man in a hoodie who was seen in the crowd in the Twitch video. Some of the suspects, college students whose only real connection to the crime was their friendship with the victims and their own keen sense of loss, became true crime villains overnight. Miss Chapin recalled her fury upon learning that some had been speculating that her son might have carried out the atrocity as part of a murder-suicide plan. Even after a real suspect was arrested, Brian Koberger, a PhD student in criminology at a nearby university, the sleuths continued to speculate offering alternative theories despite DNA evidence and cell phone tracking data described by prosecutors as linking Mr. Koberger to the crime. For Ms. Chapin and much of the university community in the small town of Moscow, Idaho, the killing had left a wave of shock and grief in its wake. At CrimeCon, she hoped her presence would help people remember what had been lost. She also wanted to connect with other victim families we're looking to find community and build support for a foundation that will award college scholarships in her son's honor. She had not even had a chance to pick up her badge at the conference before a woman wearing a, basically a detective t-shirt, on sale at the gift shop, approached Miss Chapin to give her a tearful hug, thanking her for her grace and expressing sympathy for her loss. At a meeting of family members of crime victims, she met relatives of Gabby Petito, who was killed by her fiancé in 2021 during a cross-country road trip. It was a case where true crime aficionados had found a chance to shine. Miss Petito's body was found after mass attention to the family's pleas for help on social media resulted in thousands of tips. All in all, Miss Chapin said she had found earnest support and people wanting to help. The convention sold copies of her children's book about Ethan, the boy who wore blue, written after his death. She mingled with journalists to help tell her son's story. 
four sessions at the conference were dedicated, at least in part, to discussing the Idaho case. As Ms. Chapin stepped out of the session led by the Alabama professor, she first sought refuge in a private lounge, where she came upon CrimeCon's founder, Kevin Balf. She explained to him how unnerving it was to hear someone she did not know, and who lacked a full command of the case's details, speak about the killings to such a large audience. There are so many people in there, she told him. It's shocking. The session, Mr. Balf said, was one of the conference's biggest draws. He said he had spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to present a recent crime that was of such deep interest to so many people. A court-issued gag order had prevented the usual mix of prosecutors or investigators or family members from talking about it in detail. Mr. Balf said he had selected Joseph Scott Morgan, a professor of forensics at Jacksonville State University in Jacksonville, Alabama, and host of the Body Bags podcast, because he was someone he trusted not to indulge in sensationalism. Mr. Balf said he had wondered earlier what would happen if Ms. Chapin were to visit the session during the conference, 